So it's been a while, but when I finished my undergrad, I had an opportunity to go overseas to uh, get some training uh, on missions. I did a discipleship training program with uh, this organization called Youth with a Mission. And it, it was awesome. For three months, I was in Switzerland and just receiving God's word, you know, being with uh, a group of believers uh, and being trained to do missions. And I, I really had a blast. And after those three months, I had an opportunity to go on outreach. And what that is, is basically you go to a different country, a different place to share God's love and to share his word and to connect with people. And so uh, we had different teams go going to different places and um, I end up going to Cairo, Egypt. Now when I decided to go to Cairo, Egypt, um, I thought to myself, man, I can finally see the pyramids. Right? As a kid, I always dreamed of, of looking at the pyramids, you know, I saw in every cartoon, in the books, you know, in movies, uh, it's, it's this mysterious place, you know, I, that, that is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, it's really the, the trademark of ancient civilization. It's, it's this mysterious place where, you know, you expect to find uh, mummies inside and something crazy is going to happen. And so growing up, I just had this fantasy about pyramids, right? I thought it was going to be in this remote place. Nothing is around uh, the pyramids. And so you have to get on a camel. You have to go on for a ride. And after a while, you get to see these pyramids. And inside are these exciting stuff, maybe treasures or something like that. But when I actually went to the pyramids, and this is just my personal opinion, I was really disappointed. Uh, again, this is just my personal opinion. If you saw the pyramids and you thought it was great, you know, kudos to you. But I think it's because it's not, it has nothing to do with appearance, by the way. It's because I had the wrong picture in mind. I had false expectations about the pyramid. If you know anything about the pyramid, it's in Giza. And Giza is not in the middle of nowhere. It's right next to Cairo, Egypt, which is one of the largest cities in the world. And so when you go to these pyramids, first of all, you're going on a car, and when you arrive there, there's a bunch of tourists, buses there, people are trying to sell you uh, just merchandise and trying to get you to have, buy a t-shirt, they, they want to take a photo of you and all that, and you finally arrive at the pyramids, and, 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 and they're nice, but they're empty inside. Uh, they, they look really dusty. On, on, on the background, you hear the noise of the city, and so, for me personally, just the question that came into my mind was, is this it? Is this what I was waiting for? I think a lot of us are kind of worried when it comes to our relationship with God that this will happen at the end. When we get to heaven, when we finally get to see him face to face, everything is so hyped up. Every Sunday we talk about the glory and the majesty and the beauty of God and how wonderful heaven is going to be. And so because of that, you leverage your, your life for the glory of God. You, you lay down control of your life so that the Spirit can lead you. You let go of the things that you love and cherish about this world so that you can invest into the kingdom that is coming. So everything about your life you give up for the sake of the kingdom that is coming. But what if at the end of the day you go to heaven, you see God, and you say to yourself, is this it? Is this what I've been waiting for? All of us, we kind of have that question in our hearts, in our minds. We struggle with that. Isn't that why a lot of us, we have a hard time letting go of what we have in this world? Isn't that why a lot of us, we have 
a hard time letting go of the control that we have over our lives. It's not because we, we, we don't trust God. It's just that we, we feel like we're going to miss out, that we might be disappointed. I remember one of my friends, when I was, this was when I was young, one of my friends told me, um, well, you know, James, you've got to date a lot before you get married. Because once you get married, then you're stuck with one girl. Now, that, that wasn't a godly friend, obviously. Uh, but that, that's a common notion in our society, saying that, okay, you know, you, because marriage is this kind of binding, hard thing, you have to enjoy the now. You know, you don't get to, you don't get to, to do all these different things. Uh, once you get married, you have to live with one person, you have to sleep with one person, and so before you get married, just try all these things that you can't do in marriage. Well, that person, you can tell the type of view they have on marriage. If you have a high view on marriage, if you think marriage is a wonderful thing, the way that the, the Bible describes to us how it is this intimate, loving relationship where two people commit to one another. They lay down their pride, they lay down their wants, they lay down everything about themselves for two to become one. And under that commitment and faithfulness, Surrounded by God's mercy and grace and his love in the direction of God's word, you get to live out one of the most beautiful designs uh, that, that God has ever created in this world, in this device called marriage. Some people are scared of, of having kids because, uh, because they, they think, what if, you know, I have a kid and, well, I want a boy, but the kid is a girl. Or what if the kid is not that pretty or the kid is going to act up, right? What if all those things? But if you understand what the Bible says about children, how children are a blessing from God, regardless of how they appear or regardless of how they act, how it will sharpen you, it would, it would challenge you, but at the end of the day, it's going to be a good thing for your life, then, then you recognize that, okay, there's really not much to fear. And I can, I can kind of pursue that, that, that goal. So you understand that your view on something changes the way that you live your life currently. And so the Bible is telling us today, if you change your view on God, if you have an accurate, correct view on God, if you have a high view on God, then everything about your current life is going to change. A.W. Tozer said this in his book called The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We can talk about God, we can talk about theology and the Bible and, and what we think God is like, but really our life itself, it does the talking. If you believe that God is holy, then your life would be holy. If you believe that God is gracious, then you would be gracious towards others. If you believe that God is loving unconditionally, then you can display that love to other people. You can say all those things, but if you don't live out that, that conviction about God in your everyday life, then, you know, it's pretty obvious that you don't really think God in such a way. So in today's passage, John, he receives a vision. And I think the positioning of this passage is so important because for the past couple of weeks, we looked at the seven letters to the seven churches, uh, detailed letters written to the churches in Asia Minor in the first century who are struggling and to these churches Jesus, he, he 
points out a lot of different struggles and different sins that they have. He tells the church, well, you have forsaken your first love. He says, well, you, are, um, you feel like you're small. Um, you are compromising your holiness. Your life is full of troubles and trials. You are struggling with false teachings. You look alive on the outside, but you're dead inside. And your faith, it is lukewarm. You are spiritually dry right now. All these problems, these issues come up in these letters. And the question is then, what do we do with all these issues and problems? And the answer that the letters give us at the end is it's always the same. These churches, they have different problems, but the solution is always the same. The Bible says, well, to, the, to those who con- conquer, to those who overcome, he who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There is no clear solution. There are no detailed instructions on what to do, step one, two, and three, in order to restore your holiness or in order to restore your faithfulness to the Lord. Instead of detailed instructions, what God gives is a clear vision of himself in chapter four and chapter five. So the problems that we see in chapters two and chapters three in these seven churches and in our church, the solution to those problems are found in this clear vision of God in chapter 4 and 5. And that's why we're going to look at chapter 4 today. Um, instead of a new strategy, instead of a new structure, what we really need if we want to be the church that called us to be and if we want to be Christians that God called us to be, we need a clear, fresh vision of who God is. You know, in the beginning of today's passage, John, he sees this vision. He sees an open door in heaven. That's crazy, right? I mean, it's one thing to see a door, but it's another thing to have that door be the door into heaven. And he hears a voice, the same voice that he heard in chapter 1, the voice of Jesus that sounds like the, the sound of a trumpet. This voice tells him to walk through this door. And in the rest of the passage, he really gets to describe what he sees, the glimpse that he got about heaven. He, he's explaining this vision that he has and and. It's an impossible task, by the way, because, you know, what do you do when you have to explain about the, the Grand Canyon or the Niagara Falls? I mean, words cannot describe uh, the beauty and the, 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 the grandness of, of those places. And so John, by God's grace, he does use these words to describe kind of a, a picture of what it's like to be in heaven, but just understand that it's just giving a, a, a foretaste of what it's like to be in heaven. And that appetizer itself is so good. So John, he steps into this door, and what does he see in verse 2? He sees a throne, a place where someone, a king, would rule and, and reign. That's it. No gold, no lights, simply a throne. And on that throne, it says, one was seated on the throne. So in the middle of heaven, in the center of the universe, the place where all decisions are made about our lives and about the lives of the universe. There is a throne, and on that throne, there is only one person that is seated, and that is God. God alone is on his throne. So the first point I want to make today is that God rules alone. He's not in this cosmic battle with Satan in this vision. He's not threatened because mankind is advancing and they're, they're intelligent and they're coming up with schemes where they can replicate things of God. No, God is not panicking. He's simply ruling on his throne. He is there alone. No one comes close to him. And that's the second thing that we see. It's not that he just rules alone, but God is in a class of his own. 
God, he is in a class of his own. Look at verse 3. It says this. For he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper, of Canerlian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So all these precious stones. You know, John doesn't know how to describe the things that he sees, the, the way that he, he sees this one on the throne. So he talks about these precious stones that are bright, they are flashy, they are beautiful. And he says, well, that's what it's like to look at this guy on the throne. And this did not make sense until I got married. Because, uh, you know, part of preparing for a marriage, you have to look into, you know, stones. Diamonds or different stones. You, you, and, and by the way, ladies, you know, it's important that you get a nice stone. Now, after studying the four C's uh, and the cuts, the, the color, the cubits, and, 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 and the clarity of a stone, you, you get to see uh, why expensive stones are expensive. And for me, there's this one clear difference between expensive stones and cheap stones. You shine light on that stone, and, and expensive stones, they, it sparkles. Like, it's so bright. It reflects the light like crazy. And so that's exactly what John is saying. He's saying in this vision that the one who's seated on the throne is like a precious stone, an expensive stone. This person is radiating all this, this glory, this, this beauty, this, this majesty. Around this person is this rainbow that symbolizes God's promise. And look at verse 4. Around the throne, this one central throne, there were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders. And these people are not coming after the throne, but they are surrounding the throne. The number 24 is so important because the number 12 in the book of Revelation resembles God's people. So 12 tribes in the Old Testament, 12 apostles in the New Testament. So the number 24 is 12 plus 12. It's talking about all believers of all time. The believers in the Old Testament plus the believers in the New Testament. And they are gathered together around this throne. And they are clothed in garments of white. And with, on their head, they have golden crowns on their head. And this description, if you look at Revelation chapter 19, you're going to notice that it's just like Jesus. When Jesus returns, he's coming on this white horse. He's clothed with this white garment. On his head, there are many diadems. And these people who are surrounding the throne, they look like Jesus. The white garment represents holiness and purity. The many thrones, it represents authority and victory. And it's, we know that it's not because they are righteous on their own. It, we know that it's not because they did all these good stuff that they are clothed in white. Even myself as a pastor, I know if my life was reflected in a way that I'm, in such a way as, as I was dressed, my garment would not be white. There would be many stains. It would be black all, all the way through. Because I know even on my best day, I'm not holy. I'm nothing like God. I fall short. Yet, in this description, in this vision, the Bible tells us that the believers, Old Testament and New Testament, if they place their faith in Jesus Christ, they are wearing white garments. They have authority and victory that Jesus grants. And look at verse 5. It says this. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So you kind of, 
have a flashback to Exodus where God's presence, his glory is being displayed and manifested. But I love what it says in verse 6. And before the throne, there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal. Have you ever seen a sea that's like glass, like crystal? I, I haven't. I, I'm scared of the sea. I, I, I've been deep fishing, before, deep, deep water fishing before, and, and I'm terrified of the sea. I know that the sea can change in a second. And that's why in the Old Testament, constantly when the Bible talks about the sea, it's this unknown place, this scary place. Even when the disciples are fishermen and they're on the sea, when there's a storm, they panic because they know that it's dangerous out in the sea. Yet in God's presence, there is no chaos, there is no confusion. Even the sea that is so unpredictable, it is like glass, still like crystal. And around that throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. Now, it gets even, even crazier, right? Uh, I mean, so far, you know, maybe hopefully you're tracking along, but now it's some sci-fi stuff where you have these four living creatures and we see that they are covered with eyes and they have six wings. And based on the Old Testament, we know that these are not just creatures on this earth, but these are heavenly creatures. These are angelic beings. But look at verse 7. It says, the first living creature was like a lion, which represents the mightiest among the wild animals. The second living creature was like an ox, which represents the mightiest among the domestic animals. The third creature was like the, the face of, had the face of the man, which is the pinnacle of God's creation. And the fourth living creature was like an eagle in fight, which is mightiest of the birds in the sky. And so these creatures, they represent all creation, right? From birds, animals, um, and, and people. These four living creatures are on the th- on, around the throne, and they are saying day and night, never ceasing, saying, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So there's this constant, non-stopping declaration of God's holiness day and night with no end. And all the angels are crying out to the one who is on the throne. And you might question, why are they saying the same thing over and over again? Why repeat the word holy three times? Well, it's because one time is not enough. In, in the Hebrew language, there is no exclamation mark. There is no punctuation. So the only way that you can highlight something, the only way that you can emphasize something is through repetition. So repeating this word, holy, 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 by the way, the only other place that we see that is Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees this vision again of, of God. And so you have this sense of this overwhelming purity and presence and glory of God being displayed. And these creatures are saying, holy, holy, holy. There is endless praise and worship around the throne. The one who rules alone, the one who is in a class of his own, he receives all the praise alone. And then look at verse 9. It says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever. The, 12, uh, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before their thrones saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. So you have these 24 elders. 
who are worshiping the one who's on his throne. And the way that they worship is they lay down their crown. You know, right before this, we saw that they were in white garments. They were wearing this, this crown, a, a symbol of authority and, and victory. However, when they see the one who's on the throne, they're like, no, the only one who deserves a crown is, is him. The only one who deserves all the honor is him. The only one who deserves attention in this room is the one on the throne. So what they do in worship is they lay down their crown before the one who is on the throne. Now, a lot of people ask me this question, do we receive a crown when we go to heaven? You know, is there some sort of reward when you go to heaven? Apart from salvation, if, if I do good works, if I live a good Christian life, is there some sort of reward? And yes, absolutely, the Bible promises that you would have a crown of victory, that, that God knows all that you're doing and you will receive this reward in heaven. The thing is this, when you stand before God, you're going to recognize that, oh, you did nothing to deserve that crown, but rather you, it's, it's proper for you to give everything to the one who is on the throne. You recognize that what you have done in this life is nothing compared to the one who is on the throne. So you are giving your honor, your attention, your crown to the one who is on the throne, and you are saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the picture that we get about heaven. Just in case you're wondering, is heaven going to be that good? Is God really going to be that glorious? Well, this is simply a glimpse of what it's going to be like in heaven. So how do we respond to this text? So far, we really just walked through the text with a microscope, looking at each element, seeing how this throne is described, how God is described, and I think we can respond in, in two ways. The first thing is this. If you understand how beautiful, how glorious, how, how majestic God is, then there is no room for pride and there is no room for unbelief. Kevin DeYoung, one of um, the pastors that I love, he, he shares that, well, there are many sins in our lives, but if you boil down all the sins, you know, at the essence of each sin, it's either pride or unbelief. And the surprising thing is those things are, are the two sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand. Pride, in a simple sense, is you thinking too much of yourself. Unbelief is you thinking too less of God. Pride is you thinking too much of yourself. Unbelief is you thinking too less of God. And when that happens, you begin to walk in sin. And what this passage tells us is there is no room for pride and there is no room for unbelief. Because you can't think more of yourself because the only one who deserves all the attention and all the glory is the one on the throne who is God. And you can't think little of God because all creation, heaven, on earth, everyone who existed on this planet, all the believers, every creature is screaming, holy, holy is the Lord, God Almighty. Everyone is worshiping. There's only one activity in heaven, and that is worship. Now, I don't know how this makes you feel, right? Some of us, we struggle to get through an hour of worship on Sundays, but just think about heaven being a place of endless worship. How does that make you feel? In your mind, are you going like, man, that must be boring. <laughs> man, I don't know if I can withstand eternity like that. I might, I might just walk out right now. Well, um, I think if you have the right idea of worship and you understand who you are worshiping, then you're going to recognize that it's going to be the best place on earth, that 
you'd be in the presence of God in all of him. You're going to see him face to face, and he's going to give you every reason to worship. The second thing is this. In light of this, what we can believe in every circumstance of our life is this. When life seems out of control, God is still on his throne. When life seems out of control, remember that God is still in control. Think about the context. Now let's pan out a little bit. John, the writer of the book of Revelation, he his, is pretty old. He's in his 80s. He, he followed Jesus as a teenager, and now it's around 80, 80, 90. And, and so his age is around 80. It's been like 60, 70 years since he saw Jesus go up. And he's not doing that well, right? He's been sharing the gospel. He's been living faithfully for God's kingdom. And as a result, he's on his island alone. He's in exile. He's being persecuted. He's in tribulation. This old man gave everything to God. And that's what he gets at the end. And, and that's not the only thing that's breaking his heart. He's seeing the churches that, that were established by Paul, that, that were established by his, his partners, the people who died for these churches. And he's looking at these churches and they are struggling. And they're struggling, they're suffering. There's this incredible pressure for them to give up their faith, to, to follow Caesar. The Roman, the, the empire is pressing on these, these churches, making their lives difficult. And everyone is telling the churches, hey, if you just give up on your faith, if you just follow the ways of the world, just give in, honor Caesar, pay your taxes, you know, do what's necessary to live in this land, and you will have a peaceful life. That's, that's the context of this. So John is struggling, the church is struggling, it's, it's chaotic. You know, everyone is, is about to throw in their towel and, and they want to give up. And God is simply saying, well, last time I checked on the throne, it's still me. That it's not Caesar who's calling the shots. It's not all these other people who are determining the outcome of your life. The last time I checked, I'm still on the throne. I'm alone. I'm in a class of my own. So when life is so chaotic and Still, until Jesus returns, it's going to be like a sea that changes left and right, that, that's so unpredictable. But remember, when you recognize that God is on his throne and he is working with a plan, that he's working with a purpose, that he's not just waiting and waiting and waiting, but he's still living and working and actively doing his work on this earth, then you can have confidence and you can remain faithful and you can do the will of the Lord. He's simply reminding you today that he's still in charge. So don't panic. Before him, the sea is like a crystal. It's like a glass. All creation bows down to him. And so in this new season, as we move into the fall, my prayer is that we would live with a clear vision and a picture of God, that we won't look at ourselves or our sins or our broken life, but rather we would fix our eyes on the one who's on the throne. Amen? Let's pray.